Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Left Coast Wisconsin, a podcast produced by the Lacrosse Independent. I am one of your hosts, Rachel Van Alstyne. Hi, I'm Eric Timmons of the Lacrosse Independent and co-host. This week's episode features an interview with Mike McCabe of Our Wisconsin Revolution, our Mic Drop segment, a space for community editorials, featuring Katie Noth, co-chair of the Cooley Region DSA, and last but not least, our monthly segment, Ethical Consumption. listeners this is our first like kind of big fancy interview tonight with us we have mike mccabe of our wisconsin revolution hi i'm eric timmons and i'm delighted to be here with rachel and mike so mike how are you tonight i'm good good to be with you rachel and eric uh, good to see you and uh, good to talk with you. Excellent. We've been looking forward to this. So you guys had statewide call last night. How did that go? Well, it's something that we've been doing regularly since the pandemic hit. You know, it's the way of the world now. So we've been doing these Zoom meetings. Sometimes we do issue forums again on Zoom. And then other times we do um, meetings that uh, cover a, uh, the waterfront that deal with a, a number of different topics. And the last one really had to do with with how to work for and win for small town Wisconsin, how to get the needs of Main Street ahead of the wants of Wall Street. We were fortunate to have a guest who is a Wisconsin Farmers Union organizer and wrote a a really interesting article that got picked up by Politico. Uh, he, He happens to be the chair of the Dunn County Democratic Party, and he wrote this article about why Democrats keep losing in counties like his. And and then we had a conversation about that. We had somebody from the Main Street Alliance talking about about how small businesses are suffering during the pandemic. Great conversation. Uh, You know, we had 60 going on 70 people on the Zoom call, and then about 1,700 people watched on live stream on Facebook. So we had a good audience, and we've been trying to do this as much as we can from our own living rooms or our own bare bedrooms or whatever. Some people are holed up in their basement. and uh, But we're trying to keep people connected and keep reaching out folks. That's fantastic. Mike, can I ask you, when you became director of OWR, you said the main task at hand was to create a kind of politics that doesn't currently exist. Can you help us define what sort of politics we currently have in Wisconsin and why it is largely working against common people in Wisconsin? Well, the kind of politics we've got right now is is money-driven, and it's a politics that caters to the wealthiest and most well-connected people in our society. Uh, Our our lawmakers are regularly uh, granting the wishes and doing the bidding of of the the wealthiest and most privileged people in our society. And, And the people who fall by the wayside, the people who don't get hurt, and the people whose needs aren't being met by the political system are the regular working folks. And some of them live out in the country. Some of them are rural. Some of them live in big cities. Uh, But, you know, the thing that they got in common is people aren't listening to them in in the halls of the Capitol. And their their interests are not being represented. Their their needs aren't being met. You know, I I first got to thinking about this idea that we, we don't have the kind of politics we need. I, I was urged to think about it by a teenager, uh, Greta Thunberg. I've heard speak about the climate crisis three or four times. And every time I've heard Greta speak, she says the kind of politics needed to deal with the climate crisis doesn't currently exist. We need to create it. It got me to thinking, it's not just the climate crisis where the kind of politics that's needed doesn't exist. It's economic inequality, it's social and racial injustice, it's environmental insanity. Yes, the climate crisis, the kind of politics needed doesn't exist. It's health insecurity. In, on so many fronts, the, these are national emergencies. Some of them are global emergencies. And we don't have the kind of politics needed to successfully wrestle with those problems and bring about solutions. The, the solutions aren't coming from the halls of the Capitol. And, and we're not even getting a good debate on those issues. There's just political neglect of all these incredibly important problems. And you know, the, the pandemic is not getting the kind of response from the halls of government that it needs to get. But the pandemic will pass eventually. 
you know, there, there will be a vaccine, but we, we don't have a, a vaccine against economic inequality. There's no vaccine for health insecurity or social and racial injustice, environmental insanity. Those problems aren't gonna just pass. They're gonna be with us until we as a society tackle them and, and come up with solutions. And we currently don't have the kind of politics to make that happen. So we need to revolutionize our politics. We need to, to create a politics where regular folks are heard and where regular people are in the driver's seat and, and uh, lawmakers are taking cues from them and, and acting according to their wishes and needs. I think that's a really key point. I think that a lot of people have lost. I know Russ Feingold once spoke about two different types of legislating. And one is the advocacy for your constituents. And the other one is just blind faith, doing what your constituents tell you to do. And he said, he had made a remark, I think, or his remarks included saying that you had to know, to be a good legislator, you had to know which time it was to do one or the other. And, you know, I think he is a great inspiration to me, at least in terms of being able to ride that line. And he was very responsive, I thought, as a legislator. And we need to get back to that. We need to have legislators that are more responsive to what their constituents actually need, who come home often enough, ask questions, good questions. And, and you know, we're so far away from that ideal right now. Uh, we don't have either kind of representation right now for, for regular working people. We don't have lawmakers who are up there thinking, now, I, I may not be in a position to, you know, to pose all the right questions to the people who elected me, but I, I have to keep them in mind as I make decisions. I have to act in their best interests. They're, they're taking their cues from the lobbyists and, and from the, the big donors who put those lobbyists up at the Capitol prowling the hallways uh, trying to influence our, our lawmakers. So they're not taking their cues from the people. They're not even thinking about regular working people as they're making these decisions. They're catering to these wealthy and well-connected few who are calling the tune. That's a very dysfunctional politics. And you know what, what Greta Thunberg instinctively understands is that to deal with the climate crisis, we need a kind of politics where lawmakers aren't just doing what the fossil fuel industry wants. They're, they're not just doing what the polluters uh, uh, want done. They're thinking not only about, about the impact on communities when, when there are raging wildfires to the west, there are you know, one hurricane after another to the south, there's these floods in some places, there are these severe droughts in another. And that the immense impact that it has on our economy and, and the immense impact it has on human health, they're not thinking about that. They're thinking about the checks that come from ExxonMobil and all these other interests. And, and they're taking their cues from those kinds of interests and not, and not even thinking about, about what we're doing to our planet. Greta understood that. And I think that's what she was talking about when she said the kind of politics we need doesn't exist. And that got me to thinking, you know, there's an like I said, there's a, a lot of different fronts where the kind of politics we need doesn't exist and we have to create it. And so, you know, for me, our Wisconsin revolution is about revolutionizing our politics so that we can get the kind of government that will create both an economy and a government that is of, by, and for the people. That's got to be the goal. We, we need not only a government, but also an economy. That, that is a true democracy that is of, by, and for the people. And we are very, very far away from that ideal right now. So we've got our work cut out for us. Yeah, how do we, how do, we do that? Especially in, in, in rural areas, the Democratic Party seems to kind of have moved too far away from that core economic message, it seems to me. So how do we rebuild this, 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 this politics again that that speaks to people at the bottom more you know and we just had this chair of, a, of the dunn county democrats who's also a wisconsin farmers union organizer he lives out in rural dunn county talking about this and we we as we were discussing this you know i i basically asked him that question as well and i thought his answer was wonderful and it it, it very much mirrors my own thinking during election time you know the party will send out these 
young people, maybe from Connecticut or, or Delaware or who knows where, and they'll plant them in some small rural, small town in Wisconsin for two or three months to, to do organizing and voter outreach, but they don't have any knowledge of what rural life in Wisconsin is all about. They don't have any ability to speak the language of people living in those small rural communities. And one of the things that, that he said was that, is that Democrats don't understand rural life. And so, of course, their message is the same message that they deliver to people who live in the suburbs or in the cities. They, they don't understand rural problems. And, and one of the things I, I said, I, I say it all the time, is that because I grew up on a dairy farm, because I got my start in life in rural Wisconsin, in rural Clark County, I, you know, I'm, I'm asked all the time by people who know about my background, why are rural people always voting against their own interests? And I stop them immediately and I say, wait a second, rural people understand their interests very well. They're not stupid. They understand their interests. And just because they don't define their interests the same way that you define their interests doesn't mean that they don't understand their interests or that they're voting against their interests. You don't get to impose your definition of their interests on them. You need to listen. You need to figure out how they see their interests and then make them a better offer because it's been a really long time since the Democratic Party has really done anything for rural America. You know, and, and bottom line is that my folks grew up as, as Democrats and were lifelong Democratic voters because of Roosevelt and the New Deal, because of things like rural electrification. They were old enough to actually see the power lines being strung down back roads to every barn and every farmhouse. And it's been a long time since Democrats brought anything on, on a scale of rural electrification to rural communities. So they're figuring government's not doing anything for us. So we might as well just keep it as small as possible and keep our taxes as low as possible because that's the best we can do. And that's the offer that the Republicans have made. They've said, we're gonna keep government small and we're gonna keep your taxes low. And if they don't get a better offer than that, that's the offer they'll take. That's not voting against your interests. That's just despair over the fact that government has grown so disconnected from your reality and so ins insensitive and unresponsive to your needs that you don't feel like you've got a better choice than just keeping government out of your life and keeping your taxes down. A better offer needs to be made. I think a lot of times people <clears throat> that live that don't live adjacent to rural communities or who've never been in a rural community uh, don't realize how much of the farming that goes on in the state of Wisconsin is not what we see on old movies anymore. That how much of it is corporate farming and that most of the farmers that our representatives meet with on a regular basis are corporate farmers and not family farmers. Um, and they could come out during an election cycle and to go to have a pancake breakfast at some family farmer that they know his house. But that doesn't mean they actually understand what it is for a family farmer to survive, to be able to build their business enough to pass it on to their children, to be safe from a one bad season um, and not lose everything that they own. I think a lot yeah. of people miss that. And it's... Um, really unfortunate because that really is like the backbone of those voters who are voting for Trump. I mean, those corporate farms are only so many people. There's all the right. other parts of rural Wisconsin and they're voting, you know, and the way that makes being a small business person in a, in a difficult market yeah. feasible. That's, that's yeah, what they're voting you know, think, for. Think about it. I grew up on a small dairy, family dairy farm. And there were hundreds of those farms around the small towns that I grew up around. I, I went to the Owen Withy school system and, and Owen and Withy, two small towns, had hundreds of family farms around them. Now there are just a handful of big corporate operations. They're not farms anymore, they're factories. And, and so they're, they're run by people who are largely out of state interests. They're, they're not rooted or anchored in those small towns. They didn't grow up there. 
and they don't have they, they don't have enough kids to send to, to to the schools for those schools to continue to operate they don't they're not there's not enough of them to support a, a good grocery store in town or to keep a movie theater going or to keep a bowling alley going and you know you go to downtown owen there used to be a bowling alley on Main Street. It's it's closed. There used to be a movie theater on Main Street. It's closed. There used to be a good a, a good grocery store uh, just off Main Street. It's closed. You you can't you don't do your grocery shopping in Owen. Think about all the people who used to work in those small play in in that at that movie theater in that grocery store. Uh, who there was a car dealership in Owen. It's closed. There used to be car dealers and mechanics working at that at that local uh, car dealership. It's gone. When that happens to a community, it starts to die. And then young people see that they don't have a future there and they leave and they never come back. And I was one of those young people who looked at this and said, I don't see a future here. I'm going to I'm going to go off and get myself an education. And I didn't go back. That kills those small towns. And it's because it all traces is back to the corporatization of agriculture and policies that that benefit these massive agricultural factories and exterminate small family farms it's bad for the land it's bad for the air and the water it's bad for the animals it's bad for the people and it's lethal to these small towns and and when's the last time that you saw anybody in the halls of congress or in the state legislature talk about enforcing antitrust legislation and breaking up these big conglomerates. Democrats haven't stood for breaking up these conglomerates for ages, for decades. Well, that's been lethal to these small towns. And if nobody's talking about that, if if nobody's dealing with the monopolies and the and, and the huge conglomerates, the, 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 the concentrated corporate power that is causing the effects I just described in, in little towns like Owen, they're thinking government doesn't care about us. Government doesn't care if our small town is gonna dry up and blow away. Therefore, when they hear somebody come in and say, I'm gonna bring all these jobs back, I'm gonna, you know, it's gonna be America first. And and and, and by the way, you know, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna rein in, you know, these the you know, these irresponsible multinational corporations and I care about what's going on. And on top of it, I'm gonna keep government small and I'm gonna keep your taxes low. They're thinking in the absence of a better offer, I'm going with that because because there's desperation out in those rural communities and people gotta, you know, I think first understand rural life before they can before they can speak to it. And they gotta be willing to listen to, to rural people rather than just assume that these people are stupidly voting against their own interests. Yeah, it seems, you know, you referred to the to the New Deal, which obviously through things like the Rural Electrification Act and price supports was, was a huge boon for, for rural America. And so it seems like, you know, the solution is the Green New Deal, right? That that could be a program that that could include all kinds of things to create jobs and and improve the environment and expand broadband and renewable energy and these these things but it seems like there's also an issue in rural areas and in the country in general that politics has become a so it's now a cultural identifier right and so in a sense you know is it the case that no matter how good a policy is if somebody identifies as a republican or a democrat if it's coming from the other side they just don't want to hear it how, you know, what can we do about that? That seems to be a huge problem to me. Well, you know, it's going to take time for for Democrats, for example, to make inroads again in rural communities. Uh, it it took decades for people to finally decide that the Democratic Party was no longer the party of Roosevelt. It was no longer the party of the New Deal. It was no longer the party that did so much for rural America. And people abandoned the Democrats and they cast their lot with the Republicans. That that's something that played out over decades or even generations. It's not, there's no quick fix. You you can't just go back into those rural communities and say, hey, you know, we we suddenly care about you again. And we'd like to do something for you again. 
of course, trust is going to have to be built and, and some change is going to have to be delivered that's recognizable. When that change happens, then people will start to reassess their, their political affiliations. But that's not something that happens overnight. And it doesn't happen on a, you know, just a, a whim and a prayer. You can't just say, mm -hmm. hey, here, here we've got a, you know, we've got a, a, a deal to offer you. People aren't just going to say, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll bite. I'll, I'll go all in on that. They want to, they want to see whether you're, you're for real. They, they need to know that they can trust you. And so, you, so that, that's going to have to play out over time, but it starts, it, it has to start somewhere. And I think it starts with listening to them, understanding rural life, developing trusted rural voices to speak with from progressive values and to give voice to progressive values in ways that resonate with with people who live in small towns and rural communities and and the democrats haven't invested in that they haven't they haven't seen it as important enough so this last election you, you saw democrats win big in the cities they definitely made gains in suburbs, but they they lost even worse in rural areas than they did in 2016 or before. So by all appearances, the rural, the divide between rural Wisconsin, rural America, and urban and suburban America widened. It actually, the problem got worse. And I think it's gonna stay bad until some progress is made in, in reaching out in a meaningful way to rural America. And, and it's something I obviously care about because I, I come from rural Wisconsin and I, I grew up uh, immersed in rural life. And it's frustrating to me to see how so many rural communities are suffering and dying. Yeah. That's the other thing that I think is so good about the Green New Deal that a lot of people don't think about or talk about. And I don't know that it's been communicated super well because of all of the argument about it just based on its title and the assumptions made about that bill. But the idea of it being almost a Roosevelt-like policy is like built in. Um, there are employment opportunities and infrastructure changes that would be very much like the WPA, yeah. where young people and other folks that are having a difficult time getting employed would be able to get in on the ground floor and, and do the work that needs to be done to make us compliant to our, our targets in that, in that plan. And it seems unfortunate because it's not been well communicated and it's ex actually something that would be really beneficial in rural areas where good employment is difficult to come by. But you got to talk about it in a way that that people in small towns and rural communities can relate to. You know, when you when you, when you don't have a school to send your kids to in your town anymore and you've got to put them on the bus for 45 minutes or an hour to go to some other town to 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 go to school. And then you think, why would young families possibly move into our town when there's no school for their kids to attend? When you've watched that, that grocery store, that car dealership close and, and leave, when you're having a hard time even seeing how you can put food on the table, the climate crisis is an abstraction. When, when you're dealing with that kind of immediate trauma, that immediate threat to your livelihood, the climate crisis is, a, is an abstraction. But if you start talking to people about how we export billions of dollars, we send billions of dollars in payments outside of our state to bring in the energy that we use, to bring in the oil products and the coal that we, that we burn to power our state, and that we could actually create power right here in Wisconsin. We could manufacture the solar systems, the wind systems, and, and we could employ people right here in then, in then putting up those systems in communities all across our state. We could keep that money right here in Wisconsin. It would produce jobs, good paying jobs. If you just start talking about, about the fact 
that the renewable energy sector is creating jobs 12 times faster than the rest of the economy, then you might get people's attention. Then they might stop tuning you out and they'll think, I'll, I'll be damned, maybe, maybe that could bring employment here. Maybe we could make those solar panels in, in, in our neck of the woods. Maybe we could build those wind turbines here and then we could assemble those systems and put to people to work doing that. And it would be the equivalent, a modern day equivalent of the Works Progress Administration or the Civilian Conservation Corps. My dad, I don't even think he knew what the, the letters meant, but he talked about the WPA and the CCC all the time. He talked about Roosevelt's alphabet soup and, and, and you know, and of course the modern day equivalent of, of rural electrification is, is rural broadband, bringing high speed internet to, to everywhere and to every doorstep and having mobile phone service available to everybody anywhere, regardless of where they live. And, you know, unless, unless we're willing and able to talk to people in a way that meets them where they are, where their heads are currently at, um, yeah, they're going to tune us out. And, and, and I, I, I do think that uh, that's something that Roosevelt, who was part of the American aristocracy, he came from an aristocratic family, yet he was able to speak to people like my dad uh, a, from a dairy farm family who had an eighth grade education. And he spoke to my dad in a way that made him feel like this guy cares about me. Love him or hate him, Donald Trump, also part of the American aristocracy, born with a silver spoon in his mouth, a New York City real estate developer for crying out loud, he has been able to speak to people in a way that they can relate to in, in, in small towns, in rural places across the country. Democrats have to take that to heart. They can, they can say, well, you stupid people, you're falling for, for what this guy's peddling to you. I, I think Democrats make a huge mistake when they jump to that conclusion that these people are stupidly voting against their own interests. They, they're trying to send a message to Washington. They're trying to send a message to Madison. We should listen. It might have been a wrong thing that Donald Trump did starting a trade war with China, <laughs> but he did something. And, and you, farmers and you know may, may say, yeah, and it didn't work out right for them the way he thought it was going to, but he didn't him and haw about it and kick the can down the field, which is what all of the democratic presidents have done in terms of straightening out our trade deficit with China and working on expanding our exports for farmers. So yep. he did something. And, and so, so many of the things that Donald Trump did are wrong for America, you know, building the border wall and, and, and waging war against immigrants is the wrong thing thing for our country to do. But when but he was able to sell this idea that these immigrants are are stealing your jobs. They're 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 taking over and and if you don't have employment or if you used to have a factory job making 25 or 30 dollars an hour and now the best you can find because that job has been sent overseas or it's been automated out of existence and the best you can find is 12 13 14 bucks an hour your standard of living has been cut in half and if somebody tells you i'm gonna i'm gonna start a trade war with china and i'm gonna bring all those manufacturing jobs back here that's music to, re, to your ears now was trump able to do it no was it an empty promise yes it was an empty promise but he spoke to the suffering that these people are experiencing, the desperation that they are feeling, and, and offered them simple answers. And the response was deafening silence. The, from the other side, the response was no solution whatsoever, no answers whatsoever. So if, if, it's, a, if it's a dumb answer, or if it's, a, if it's an answer that might not actually solve anything, if it's a solution that doesn't actually work, at least he's trying something that, and, and people give him credit for that. That too, Democrats have to take that to heart, that if they don't offer anything 
and then then a demagogue like Trump making mm -hmm. these kinds of claims, uh, he'll he'll find an audience for it. And you know, he didn't get seventy some million votes by accident. Uh, you know, people people were willing to take a, a a chance on him the first time, and there were seventy some million people who said, "Let's keep going down this path." Uh, and that that has to be taken seriously. Yeah, it seems like there's there's a kind of depressing irony that 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 this kind of anti-immigrant rhetoric worked in these rural communities, so, which when so many of them are de dependent on immigrant labor and in these big dairy operations and slaughterhouses and so on. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and a lot of a lot of people, you know. They they think oh you know immigrants are stealing your your jobs well a lot of the immigrants are doing jobs that that nobody else wants to do you know milking cows is dirty work and it's really hard work and there's not an awful lot of people from from in town who want to go out to the farm and milk cows so yeah there there there's there are immigrant farm workers who are your cow milkers today. And they're, they're you know, cleaning toilets and making beds in hotels. And, and you know, this idea that, that they've stolen jobs, hell, they're doing jobs that a lot of people don't want to do, but, but, they're, but they're willing to do that work because it, it provides them with some future. To demonize them is the wrong thing for America to do. It's, and, and it, it, it really degrades us as a country. But I understand why people are drawn to that message when they feel like they don't have an economic future in this country. Uh, they have to be offered a bright future. That's what Roosevelt and his New Dealers did in my, in my dad and mom's early years. They, they lived through the Great Depression and they felt like the government was offering them a way out of that trauma. There was a path forward. I don't think dad knew what the what WPA stood for, but he can he could for his whole life he could point to projects and say the WPA built that or that that was a, a CCC project. And and he he knew the things that had been done that put people to work and that created things in, in his small town. And, uh, and he wasn't alone in understanding that. And of course, they saw the power lines go up and they, they knew it was run to every barn and every farmhouse down all those back roads. I grew up on a gravel road. You go down that gravel road, there was power lines going to every single farmhouse, every single barn. And they knew what farming was like before they had electricity and they knew how electricity revolutionized uh, the rural economy and revolutionized rural life. People are waiting for that kind of revolution to come again uh, for their small towns and they're not seeing it. And that's making them vulnerable to the appeals of demagogues uh, and, and, uh, and snake oil salesmen who will, who will offer them uh, a lot of empty promises. Mike, let's talk about the uh, 2021 Wisconsin. Um, OWR has just come out with a six-point plan. Um, I'm not sure how you know what the what the opportunity is to to get this done. But can you talk about it and how it could be done and and how the Democratic Party in Wisconsin could take a more aggressive stance against the Republican majorities and try and create this new, more kind of working-class agenda? Well, you know. Democrats aren't going to get anything from Republicans. The Republicans have made it very clear they have no interest at all in passing any bills that the governor or Democratic legislators want. So Democrats aren't going to get an inch of progress uh, from Republicans. The, the, it's very plain and clear that Republicans uh, are not looking to compromise. They are not looking to work together with Democrats. And, and so to get separate legislation that would do any of the things that we've talked about that would be advances for our, our state, it's not going to happen through separate legislation because Republicans aren't going to pass that legislation. But there is an opportunity 
to get some of those things into the state budget because the state budget is the one and only bill that has to pass every two years in every legislative session. And in 2021, a, a new state budget has to be put together. It starts with the governor's proposal. What we're encouraging him to do is to think big and to act boldly. I think there's a likelihood with the pandemic that, that he, he'd wanna play it safe. And, and I think that he, you know, we can't spend any money. I think that's the wrong impulse. Uh, there are problems even bigger than the pandemic. The pandemic will pass. Economic inequality is not gonna just go away. Health insecurity is not just gonna go away. Uh, environmental insanity and cli the climate crisis is not just gonna go away. Social injustice is not just gonna go away. We need, we need real change. He needs to put big proposals into his budget. Now the Republicans will turn around and try to strip all that out of the budget. That's where the governor needs to fully use the power of the governor's office. And the governor in Wisconsin does have really extensive veto authority. And, and it's not just to veto an entire bill. He can actually use a partial veto and carve up a, a budget bill. And, and it, you know, it's, it's even more powerful than what's been known as a line item veto. He's got a really extensive veto authority. So what he needs to do is he needs to plausibly threaten some Republican pet programs. He needs to target some things that Republicans really cherish and, and propose eliminating that funding. They'll try to put the funding back, but he needs to make it really clear that he is prepared to use his veto power to take that funding out again, and they don't have the two-thirds majorities in both houses to override those vetoes. That is where he has leverage, and that's where we could actually get some of the things that this state needs and that voters want. It's, it's the one opportunity that exists. What we've asked him to do, we've asked him to do six things and, and just take some big steps in the budget to deal with those four emergencies that I talked about. Boost wages, make the, the minimum wage a living wage. Take it from $7.25 an hour and boost it to $15 an hour. Or, or if you, you can phase that in, it doesn't have to be done overnight, but get it to $15 so that if you work, you're not poor. You know, working people would, would not live in poverty. Uh, second thing that we're, that we're suggesting is to, is to uh, further help working people by changing our tax system. We've got a tax system where the wealthiest 1% pays the lowest overall tax rate in Wisconsin. And if they just could be brought up to paying the same kind of rate as, as poor and, and middle-class people pay, that would bring in a lot of money that could pay for needed investments. So, so you know, you gotta have the, the wealthy paying their fair share. That was the second thing. We also are, are calling on the governor to deal with health insecurity by taking federal Medicaid expansion money. It's money that the federal government is offering us and Wisconsin has turned it down. Take the money, bring it into our state, get more people health care by doing Medicaid expansion. And it's not, we don't have to raise state taxes to do it. The federal government has offered states this money and Wisconsin stupidly has turned that money down. Let's reverse that decision. Let's deal with, with the digital divide and invest significant amounts of money in rural broadband and bringing, bringing high speed internet, not just to rural communities that can't get connections, but inner city neighborhoods in many cases can't get a decent internet connection. Bring broad, bring internet to every doorstep, then invest in renewable energy. Now, as I mentioned, this, this can be an incredible benefit to the economy because the renewable energy sector is creating jobs 12 times faster than the rest of the economy. Make significant investments there. And then the sixth thing that we've raised is marijuana legalization. And you know it's a bold step, but it's a step that the public is ready for. It's something that's happening in places like Mississippi and South Dakota. Conservative states are going for marijuana legalization. And it makes all kinds of sense because dispensaries would open all over the state. That's jobs. It's also new revenue that would come in. $200 million a year could be raised, 400 million for a two-year state budget that could be spent on things like renewable energy and, and internet access, all those kinds of things. 
could be funded this way. Plus, it's a way to really strike a blow for social justice. Um, black people are more than four times more likely to be arrested for marijuana possession than whites. And yet usage rates are virtually identical between black people and white people. There's no significant difference between how many black people use and how many white people use, yet blacks are more than four times as likely to be arrested for it. So it's a driving force behind mass incarceration. So there's so much good that can be done by taking this step, but that's that requires some boldness, a willingness to, to, to act very boldly on the governor's part. Well, he should do that. Do you think he will? And what can what can our listeners do to try and push him in that direction? What are some of the tactics people can use? I think people are perhaps tired of things like, you know, write a letter to your, you know, send an email to your lawmaker. Those kind of tactics, unfortunately, with a lot of Democrats don't seem to move them on these issues. So what would you suggest people can do to push the Democrats in this state to fight for this agenda? Well, people do need to get in the ear of the governor uh, in any way possible. Uh, if they can, if they can corner him at a meeting, or 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 if, even if it's a virtual meeting on Zoom, if they, you know, people shouldn't be afraid to write the letters or make the phone calls. You got to be in the ear of the governor in any way that you can. And I think the, you know, we've put forward this agenda. We call it the Motion W agenda. Uh, and it's really about trying to build an economy that is a democracy. It's of, by, and for the people. Uh, and and I, I think people need to tell the governor, take these bold steps. But just as importantly, the message has to come from a lot of people that he needs to use the negotiating leverage he has. He needs to play hardball with these Republican legislators. They've tried to strip him of his powers. They've blocked him at every turn. They've shown no interest whatsoever in cooperating with them. So he needs to play hardball. He didn't do that with his first budget. He needs to do it this time. One of the things we suggested to the governor was that he should propose eliminating funding in the budget for private school vouchers the state subsidies that go for private schooling. And the taxpayers have to fund these subsidies for the few who privately school their kids. Most of them were privately schooling their kids before the voucher program was, was ever created. Now they're just, now all of us are subsidizing that choice. Propose eliminating that program because the Republicans love that program. It is one of their most favorite pet programs. That's exactly what the governor has to do is, is threaten one of their pet programs because they'll put the funding back. He could then use his veto power to eliminate the funding again and they can't override him because they don't have two thirds majorities in both houses. He does have some power here. He does have some leverage here if he's willing to use it. So far, he's he's tried to play nice with the Republicans in the legislature, and they've and they've trampled them. They've shown no interest in cooperating with him or working together with the Democrats. People have to on the Democratic side have to say, okay, we we uh, we've heard your message, we've we, we've seen your behavior, so we're gonna have to insist that we get something out of the state budget or you lose something that's precious to you. And, and it wouldn't have to be school vouchers. There's a lot of other things that Republicans want in the budget. If the governor is willing to say, I'm gonna eliminate those things, they're gonna go away unless you work with me and unless I get some things in return. That's the kind of hardball that's needed. And that's what we're pushing for the governor to do. He's not so far shown a willingness to, to, to do it this way. I think he needs to. So is OWR then actively looking for candidates in these, uh, these counties where we're dealing with these issues to start talking about this seven point program with, or six point program with their would be their future constituents? to like challenge some of these Republican lawmakers and some of these more complacent Democrats who have just sort of, are, are just kind of like riding into Washington or riding into Madison every time we turn around. I mean, it seems to me that 
that's part got to be part of the equation. And then a second part of this question is, is OWR interested in or are they willing to start organizing some direct actions in support of this? Because I think I get what Eric's saying is the letter writing campaigns are great, but it seems like the only way you get anything done in Madison or in Washington, D.C. is when you show up. Yeah, yeah. And I, I would say the answer is yes and yes. And, and there are people who are are doing uh, vigils and, and protests and willing to get arrested at the governor's mansion uh, over the state budget. And, and that's exactly the kind of actions that need to be taken. You need to get their attention however you can. Yes, people need to write letters. They need to make phone calls. They need to send emails. They need to, you shouldn't avoid doing those things. But, but yes, you should do other things to get attention. And if it, if, it means, if it means holding vigil in front of the governor's mansion and even risking getting arrested to get the attention of the governor, that, that all has to be on the table. And yes, we need, to, we need to develop, identify people who have the potential to be change agents, of the potential to be transformational leaders, and then help them uh, get started in terms of pursuing uh, public office. And, and people are very frightened of running for office. They, they don't think they're worthy. They don't think they're capable. So you need to identify people who have the potential to be good candidates, but then give them coaching, give them, help them develop the ability. And, and I think that's a longer game because I don't think you just you don't find somebody and say, okay, you're going to run for state assembly or you're going to run for state senator, or you're going to run for Congress. Those districts have been so brutally gerrymandered that you're going to lose there anyway. I think you actually start at the more local level, getting people to run for city council, for county board, for school board, for town board. Uh, and then they'll learn the ropes. They'll kind of figure out how to run a campaign. They've never done it before. They'll, they'll develop a political following and then they can take the next step to state assembly or state senate or even Congress. Uh, we need to grow our own and that's a big emphasis for, for our Wisconsin revolution. We don't wanna just wait until people have decided to throw their hats in the ring and then think about which of those candidates best reflect our values or which of those candidates we can live with. We wanna, find people who we know share our values and who we believe have the potential to be real change agents, transformational oh. leaders, and then help them along the way and give them every bit of support we can. And that's something that, that's happening in, in La Crosse. Uh, you know, the chapter there, we've got our Northwest region organizer, Joella Striebel is working with a bunch of people about running for city council. I think they've got seven or eight willing to take that plunge. She's even talking about then running for the county board in the future. That's, I think that's where it really starts is think locally, think at the community level first, then that will eventually lead to people uh, who will become impactful candidates for state offices or even national offices. Uh, th that's, you know, that's a longer game, but it's something that our Wisconsin Revolution is really dedicated to. Us endorsing candidates who've already made the, who've taken the plunge, um, that's not good enough. We have to grow our own candidates. We have to, we have to find the people and help nurture them. So Mike, if somebody wanted to get involved with our Wisconsin Revolution, either offering themselves as a candidate or engaging for training on how to work in uh, campaigns and that sort of thing, or on the ground organizing. How do they get in touch with you guys? Our website is ourwisconsinrev.com. And, and if you go on the website, you know, you can actually sign up. Uh, and, and there are little boxes on the sign up that says that you're interested in uh, connecting with a local chapter or uh, one that says connect me with a local organizer. And we would put people in touch with with an organizer like Joella. We've got four of them throughout Wisconsin, four regional organizers. Joella's one of them. She's based out of La Crosse and, and is in touch with people throughout the, the region in, in Western Wisconsin and in Northwestern Wisconsin. And, and so people can connect with us through the website, ourwisconsinrev.com. Um, we're on social media. So people who are 
uh, into social media can find us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. So if you've got a, face, a favorite social media platform, you can just message us that way as well and, and, uh, and connect with us that way because our, our, our organizers are monitoring those all the time and we're connecting with people. And so if, if there are folks out there who think, you know what, I might be willing to think about it. And not everybody's right to be a candidate, but, but maybe they could become a campaign manager or, or help in some other way in a campaign, or they can find another way to, to be involved in, in civic life. Regardless of whether you're thinking about being a candidate or helping somebody else run for office, or if you, or if you just wanna become more of a local activist uh, and, and help influence public policy, we want to be a resource that can help nurture that and can help grow that that you know that that grassroots power. Uh, that's what it's going to take to revolutionize our politics, or we're going to continue to be stuck with what Greta Thunberg talks about—a kind of politics that is not up to the task. That it, it, it isn't what we need to solve the big problems facing our society. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation with you. I'd like to see if we can get you back on in say six months and see how things are shaping up for this big push. I know you guys are pushing really hard against the governor and also um, working with uh, the DSA, the local DSAs in the state of Wisconsin for uh, healthcare for all, Medicare for all. Yep. So um, if you'd be interested, we'd sure love to have you back in a few months. All you have to do catch is, up. is ask. All you have to do is ask. I'd, I'd be delighted. Um, I've really enjoyed the the opportunity to have this conversation. Thanks for having me on, and and uh, and do ask in the future. Okay. You know, I I, um, I I would be happy to do it. Well, great thank you, Mike. It was a really great conversation. Thanks a lot for coming with us. And that's it. And our listeners, um, you just got a chance to meet Mike McCabe, leader of our Wisconsin Revolution. I hope you check out his uh, organization's website. And uh, stick around so maybe you can hear him when he comes back to tell us how things are going. My name is Katie Nav. I am co-chair of the lacrosse-based Cooley DSA, and this is my mic drop. Navigating our healthcare system is a riddle for most people in the best of times. Like so many Americans, I've gone years without care. Even when I thought I was covered by employer-based insurance, I was often surprised by hefty medical bills. After years of healthcare instability, I'm grateful to finally have adequate health insurance subsidized by my employer. But after several rounds of COVID-related layoffs where I work, there's no guarantee that I will remain employed during this tumultuous time. If I lose my job, my family loses our insurance, which makes me worry. What happens if one of us gets COVID-19? The Commonwealth Fund estimates that between February and, and June of 2020, about 7.7 million Americans lost their employer-based health insurance, and with them, an additional 6.9 million dependents have gone uninsured. Add that to the existing 28.9 million uninsured Americans estimated by the Kaiser Family Foundation, and you get a whopping 44 million Americans, about 13% of the population, without any reliable means of paying for health care. The average cost of hospitalization for COVID-19 comes in at $14,366, according to MarketWatch. Unfortunately, I don't have that kind of money to spare in my savings, and I, don't, and I know I'm not alone. The United Way of Wisconsin estimates that 37% of households in La Crosse County struggle to meet all of their basic monthly household expenses, including food, housing, and health care. The stress that this pandemic has put on the health and finances of our community is dire. And if we don't act to address it, we won't just see continued rises in death. We will also see waves of bankruptcies and evictions hit our community in the coming months. Luckily, there is a bill in the House and Senate right now that would ensure that all Americans have access to the life-saving care they would need if they contract COVID-19, regardless of whether or not they are insured. The Healthcare Emergency Guarantee Act, HCEGA, S. 3790 HR 6906 in the House would leverage the existing funds and infrastructure of Medicare to pay for medically necessary health care for individuals with COVID-19 for the duration of the pandemic. 
The Cooley Democratic Socialists of America, which I represent, is partnering with Our Wisconsin Revolution and Wisconsin Chapter of Physicians for a National Health Program to demand that our representatives support this legislation. We are calling on Ron Kind to co-sponsor HR 6906 and demonstrate the leadership that we need at this time to safeguard our, the lives of our friends, family, and neighbors. This pandemic is not over yet. According to the CDC, La Crosse County's positivity rate is in the teens and rising. The hospitals are full. Our healthcare staff are exhausted and in danger. Many families are struggling to pay their bills. The least we can do is ensure that those who get sick with this illness don't go bankrupt to survive. The least we can do is pass the HCEGA. Some of you may be familiar with the phrase, there is no ethical consumption under capitalism, and some of you may not. It has come to mean that we shouldn't beat ourselves up for purchasing what we need to from capitalists in a capitalist system. For example, when you're broke as a joke, grocery shopping at Walmart is what you have to do. It doesn't make you bad for spending your money in a place that makes money off keeping their workers in need of medical assistance and food stamps. Boycotts are useful but they ignore the economic realities of poor folk and working folk. So I'm working on a spot for Left Coast, Wisconsin, where I'll be drawing attention to places and companies that are deserving of our ire or our kudos that should be avoided if possible or chosen over the other alternatives. We all want to feel good about the places that we spend our money. So we're looking for local, reasonably priced places with good labor relations and customer service. If you have a recommendation for either a soft boycott and or a good alternative, please send them to me. I'd love a quick anecdote too. Give some context for your recommendation and I might just use it on the podcast. And don't worry about how obscure or local the suggestion is either. If you know a locally owned ethical pet food shop, send it. If you know of a coffee shop that on the regular offers free things to homeless folks and allows them to linger to keep warm and dry in the winter, we want to hear about that too. And if you know a place that they treat their workers, the environment, customers, or anyone else like crap, send it and tell us where you shop instead. Send your suggestions and stories to lacrosseindependent at gmail.com and put ethical consumption in the subject line. Thanks! As reported in the Lacrosse Independent on August 14th of this year, there has been growing controversy surrounding the longtime lacrosse business, the People's Food Co-op. Much of this controversy stems from a series of historical shifts in mission and approach to employment, engagement, and management. Austin Goodrich, the author of the August article, lays out in good detail these issues. For most of us who remember when the co-op was a tiny storefront and a neighborhood grocery on Adams Street, much has changed. While some may have welcomed the wider aisles and the expanded selection, a good deal of the sense of community that it previously provided was lost. The results of these high-buck improvements has also impacted its own relationship with its employees, who once were vested owners and volunteers. This month, the People's Food Co-op held elections for the Board of Directors. Looking over the candidates, it seems that some who have intimate knowledge of the store and its history are stepping up in hopes of reshaping the co-op, perhaps returning it to its previous philosophical underpinnings. We support changes at the People's Food Co-op that would include a larger voice for the employees and more community outreach in support of low-income and no-income families beyond accepting SNAP and WIC. The foundation of the co-op historically was to provide affordable, healthy food at prices that allowed anyone access. We must all remember that while progress and change can be good, Gentrification of food and access to nourishing food is detrimental to the overall health of a community. For the sake of La Crosse's lower-income families, let us all hope the People's Food Co-op moves forward with broader and more inclusive policies.
Left Coast Wisconsin is hosted by Anchor and available on the following platforms. Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Breaker, CastBox, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Pocket Casts, and Radio Public, with more to come. Please follow the Lacrosse Independent on Twitter at Lacrosse Indie and on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Lacrosse Independent. If you like what you're hearing and want to support us and our work, follow us at our Patreon. You can find that at patreon.com forward slash Lacrosse Independent and look for the Left Coast Wisconsin tier. Our theme is Little Hat, written by John Nokovic and performed by Bojo's Mojo and used by permission of John Nokovic. All other music and sound effects were obtained at zapsplat.com and are used under general licensing Creative Commons. Audio editing and production, Rachel Van Alstein. Production, copywriting, and talent, Eric Timmons, Evan Dvorak, and Rachel Van Alstein. This has been a Lacrosse Independent production, all rights reserved. <laughs>